Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly demonstration of my sheer incompetence when it comes to all things Great Lakes. Uh, my name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, and I am super pumped to be here on a Wednesday morning because I'm joined by my good friend, the one, the only Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what's up? There are actually a bunch of Carolyn Foley's in the world. I, I don't know if you ever like Google yourself, but <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I see like, but anyway, yes, um, I am doing well. Thank you, Stuart. How are you doing? I, I'm doing fine too. Yeah. There's a battle among the Stuart Carlton's. That is true. Um, <laughs> and there's this one dude who lived like in the 19th century, I think named Hawking Stuart Carlton. It used to be when you, that would, that you'd find him. Since then I've achieved enough in my career where I'm finally beating out someone who's been dead for like 200 years uh, when it comes to Google results for my name. So, so that's good. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, so today, this is actually something that you brought up. I think it's dear, near and dear to your heart as a uh, Canadian-American, or however you identify. It should really be near and dear to the heart of anybody who's in the Great Lakes. And if you're paying attention to the news, you've probably heard about Line 5. Um, Line 5. Yeah, and it's um, it's a really tricky issue, because um, there are good reasons why it's there. There are concerns about why it's there. So today, we're going to talk with somebody about some of the things you probably need to take that back because I took over from you. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. No, that's awesome. Yeah. We're going to talk to somebody about some things. That's what we do on this show. Uh, but the good news is today, the person we're going to talk to, as we all know, is a uh, researcher, which means uh, with apologies to our guest, it's time for the researcher feature theme. So here we go. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Anderson. He's a hydrodynamicist, which reminds me of my first question. A hydrodynamicist with the uh, Great uh, NOAA Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab. Eric, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So that is the first question. Hydrodynamicist. Hydro means water. Dynamism means having to do with movement or something or maybe volume. So what is a hydrodynamicist? Yeah, you hit it. Um, so it's right movement of water, kind of the physics of water. Uh, maybe the the reason that I use that term is to distinguish the stuff that I do from, say, works that hydrologists do. So hydrologists are generally interested in kind of quantity of water in and movement of water, but in that uh, kind of tracking water through the water cycle. Um, hydrodynamics is more about the uh, momentum equations, the energy equations, so waves and currents and the forces um, behind uh, what's going on out there, say, in my case, in the Great Lakes. So that's kind of the distinction there. Sounds like super nerdy stuff. That's good. That was a great answer, actually. <laughs> I was super psyched. I'm fired up. I'm like, I wish I were a hydrodynamicist. All right, that's good. So here we're here, we're here to talk about Line Five today, which is uh, so it's an oil pipeline. Um, uh, it it, uh, it it runs under the Straits of Mackinac, right? Um, and it delivers crude oil from Western Canada through Michigan and into Ontario. Is that is that how that works? Yeah, it goes. Um, so at the, the origin is is up in Western Northern Canada, um, and then I don't know where it actually becomes technically Line Five, but essentially it runs from. Uh, you know, the, the western end of Lake Superior, uh, when we get into the Great Lakes region, and, um, so near Superior, Wisconsin, or, or Duluth, across the UP, uh, right along the shoreline of, of southern UP, so along like the northern end of Lake Michigan. And then it gets to the Straits of Mackinac, and 
it uh, it splits into two pipes at that point, dives down into the water. Um, so when it's when we say when you hear under the Straits of Mackinac, it's in the water. It's not below the ground, but it rides along the bottom of of the lake. And then resurfaces on the lower peninsula side of Michigan and makes its way to Sarnia, Ontario. Great. And I said the Straits of Mackinac, didn't I? Oh my God, this day needs to end and it's just started. <laughs> you, you did. And yeah. I actually was going to call you out on that. Yeah, but, oh, you um, should. That's I, fair. Eric was a lot nicer and just kind of said, oh. I can't read and think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this um, this fits in really well with, you know, you're a hydrodynamicist. You were talking about like the movement of the water and you mentioned that the... the um, the pipe is actually in the water when it goes kind of through that. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that area where the pipe is in the water and, and what the importance is to the broader Great Lakes in terms of water moving around and things like that? Yeah, it's um, so I've heard it say said by a colleague that it's the most dynamic area in the Great Lakes. Again, that word dynamics. Um, but really, I think the reason he said that is the currents are wild there. There's a lot of, of movement, fast movement uh, that has, I think, been um, something noteworthy for people for a long time. So we found, you know, French explorers wrote about it in the 1600s when they were trying to go through there. And of course, Native Americans have, have been dealing with that for a long, 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 long time before that. Um, but essentially, the Straits of Mackinac connects Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. The way that I picture it, so first you have these two massive lakes, some of the world's biggest lakes in Michigan and Huron, connected by this very narrow bottleneck. Um, this, the, the straits are about um, you know five kilometers wide, uh, maybe at the narrowest point. Uh, and they're about 90 meters deep. So it's like it's like an old river channel. When the lakes formed initially, Michigan kind of dumped into to Huron through a riverbed. So there, so at the bottom, it, there's this very deep, narrow river channel, and it's kind of like a V shape uh, if you think of the the transect there. Um, but you have these two giant lakes, and whether the atmosphere is acting on both of those lakes all the time. So the way I picture it is if if you have if you could imagine um, two different waterbeds, <laughs> that's the way I think about it, connected by some little you know. Uh, you know, section that connects the two waterbeds. If you were to jump on one of them, all that water would rush through that little bottleneck into the other waterbed. And that's what's going on in Michigan and Huron. So when the wind blows on on one lake or, or atmospheric pressure is pushing down on one lake, it's forcing that water to move around. And when that has to go through the strait, you're now pushing, again, this massive amount of water through a, a small area. And so when it goes through there, it, it has to accelerate and it moves much faster through that zone. So, which means the currents are uh, a lot higher than what you see in in the open lakes. It's it's, it's almost like river currents, or the, if you want a visual picture, of the water, the rapids, say going over Niagara Falls, that's the speeds that you have going through the Straits of Mackinac at certain times when water's rushing back and forth through there. So, it's a, it's an important area to navigation. You know, if you want to get into Lake Michigan from any of the lakes, you got to go through the Straits of Mackinac. Um, it's important uh, in just movement of water from the Great Lakes to the ocean. So this is how Lake Michigan water gets, you know, into Huron, down through Erie, Ontario, and eventually out to the Atlantic. Um, but it's not just a one-way uh, transaction there because if you, again, go back to that waterbed analogy, which I'm not even sure I like that analogy, but we'll use that. But if you think about that, the water's going back and forth, right? It doesn't care which which bed uh, it the wind is blowing on. And so it's not just Michigan water moving into Huron. All that's 
that's the ultimate fate of Lake Michigan water. Um, Lake Huron water is being pushed into Lake Michigan through the Straits and then maybe eventually back out. And even superior water, so superior drains down St. Mary's River into Lake Huron. Some of that water might be sucked through the Straits of Mackinac into Lake Michigan before it eventually makes its its way back, you know, down through the Great Lakes into the Atlantic. So it's really important important to the way water moves through the Great Lakes, important to navigation. Uh, it's important to, you know, the tribes that have lived around that area for a, a very long time. Um, it's important to tourism. And it's if you haven't been up there, it's just a beautiful spot. It's it's it really is uh, you know awe-inspiring to to look at the straits. So in a number of ways, it's important to uh, a lot of the things we care about. And because it's so dynamic up there, that water uh, that, that moves in and out of the straits really has a far reach. And maybe that you know leads into some of the, the, the reason why Line 5 has been such an issue. So um, I just want to back up. So first off, the mention of waterbeds. I know you said you're not sure you like that analogy, but I, it, it instantly took me back to like when I was seven years old and I was like, man, these are so cool. Visiting right. my friends. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure there are waterbeds anymore. I wonder <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> oh no, my dad has a waterbed. In fairness, it's been in his room since he moved into his current house in like 1992. <laughs> but it's still there. But yeah, but so I, I just wanted to say like a couple of years ago when I was starting it, um, we were we were trying to find some facts about Lake Michigan. And one of the facts we wanted to talk about was like the amount of time that a droplet of water hangs out in Lake Michigan. Oh, wait, do you know this? Well, I mean. Because I can do the thing. If... No, we shouldn't do a thing. No, we got a thing. Here we go. It's a Great Lakes factoid. <laughs> a Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. Carolyn, what's your Great Lakes factoid? My Great Lakes factoid is that it's either the, the amount of time, and Eric's going to correct me on this, the amount of time that a droplet of water hangs out in Lake Michigan is either like 97 to 99 years or 66 years or something like that, right? Depend Because the modeling, like you think that like, okay, down around Chicago, stuff is sort of hanging out there. But when you, like people didn't necessarily think about everything that's happening at the Straits. That's like... The water's coming back and forth and splashing all over the place. So Eric can correct me if I said either one of those wrong. Because when I went looking for it, I found multiple answers that were really different. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, I don't have the, you know, those numbers um, could be right. I don't don't have not the top of my head. But I think what that calculation is based on, the numbers I do have in my head. So like the net flow from Michigan to Huron is something like... um, one to 2000 cubic meters per second, like an annual net, like movement of water from Michigan to Huron. But the Straits moves water back and forth at like 80,000 cubic meters per second. So like the oscillation is so much more than just the net trickle (laughs) into Huron. And I think that gets at that question of like, how long is water hanging out in there? And and Straits really mess things up. So, so we talk about all this water and why this is such an important area in terms of the, like, you know, recreation and, and water hydrodynamicity and, and all this stuff. Um, But so why is there, but so under there is where this Enbridge line five is. That's where all this oil flows through. And I I did look it up. It's about 540,000 barrels a day, which is roughly a deep water horizon oil spill per week of oil going through there. Um, I happen to know because I started working for Sea Grant as a result of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Anyway, um, and and so so d- is it just the convenient place to put it is there? Because you can go under the lake as opposed to having to go underground. It's easier and you don't have to go through cities and things like that. Do you know why it is they chose that area, you know, such an important area um, uh, for the the pipeline? I don't, you know, know the, the reasoning behind that, but my guess is that 
you know, that's the shortest point to get across, right? So that the least amount of underwater pipeline that they they could um, use to get down to Sarnia. And the, I, probably the least amount of pipeline, you know, the other option is to, uh, if you don't want to cross the Great Lakes, is to go on the north side of Superior and down through Ontario, that way to Sarnia. And that's probably just a longer route. So the decision is probably like, this is our shortest way in, in the least amount of underwater, you know, uh, pathway that we got to take. At NOAA Glero, you have been involved in some modeling to see like what would happen if there was a rupture in the pipeline, right? Um, and where the water would go based on the types of information you were talking about earlier. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how the models are created or how they have been created and maybe refined over the years? Yeah, so it starts really with um, observations of what's going on of, with the hydrodynamics. So um, with that, you know, currents basically, uh, but water levels and temperatures and all the different physical aspects that we care about. And Glural, um started measurements in the Straits in the 70s. And there was probably measurements before that um, by the Army Corps of Engineers, I'm guessing, with, with maybe the design even of the pipeline. Um, but in the 70s, NOAA made some measurements of currents. They did so again in 1990. Uh, no models of the Straits uh, yet uh, in there. And then we started to do it uh, since I've been at Glural, um, in maybe about 10 years ago. I started taking more measurements of, of currents and temperatures in the Straits. And that was to get a better sense of really what's what's happening there. So the, the measurements in the 70s told us that uh, the flow is oscillating, give us a sense of of what that looks like, how often it, that happens. In the 90s, it confirmed that with kind of a newer technology. Uh, and But to build a model, we needed a little bit more data and we needed year-round data. Both of those were just field campaigns that lasted for part of a year, a few months. Um, and so we started putting out measurements to to take current uh, current measurements throughout the water column at a few different locations in the Straits year-round. So every hour, getting an understanding of what the currents are doing from the bottom of the lake to the top. Same thing with temperatures and and other conditions. Uh, So that's the kind of stuff that we need to use to, I guess, check the model. But in general, how these models work, these are models that have the basically physics equations, physics processes written into computer code. And we tell, you know, uh, based on what we know about physics, we say this is how water would re- react to certain wind conditions or atmospheric conditions. Um, these models then uh, are broken into little chunks, so little pieces that make up the lake surface. So imagine, I guess, picture, say, Lake Michigan, and if you broke it into uh, you know, a million little triangles, that's what these models look like. And in each one of those triangles, we solve uh, a bunch of physics equations to say how the water will move in reaction to say whatever the winds that's happening on the surface. Um, And that's how these models, so that that information is passed from one triangle to the next, and that gives you a prediction of what's going on in the lake. When we do that, you know, we can just trust it, (laughs) or we can say we better check it against observations. So in this case, we build these models, and then we check them against all kinds of measurements from around the lakes. Uh, So not just in the straits, but, but all over. In the Straits in particular, because it's so uh, important to, to many aspects um, and because the currents are, are, there's a lot of action up there, these measurements are really critical to understand if we're getting that, that component right. And so we use that to, to check the model if we need to make changes, if there's some mismatch, you know, that it becomes, become, becomes like an investigation. Um, what's wrong with the model? Where's, you know, where, where's that error coming in? And we try to fix it. 
you know, it's a, it's a continual improvement process that will last well beyond my career. Um, but that's really the, the backdrop there. So the, the Straits, you know, in, in uh, context of the Great Lakes as a whole, the Straits is probably one of the most observed locations in the Great Lakes from a physical standpoint. So uh, currents and water temperatures, uh, even waves, we have more data there just in the last few years than we have really in, in anywhere else. Which sort of makes sense based on how important it seems to be to so not just line five, like we're talking about line five specifically today, but um, a bunch of other things too. So, so part of the deal with these models is you want to be able to predict what would happen if there were some sort of rupture or spill related to line five, right? Is that all you use them for? Or do you use the models for other things related to lake dynamics, et cetera? Great question. Um, yeah. So th these models are actually designed before we started to even uh, considering the line five rupture and, and the place they would serve there. Um, so NOAA operates these types of hydrodynamic models for, for the oceans, for coastal oceans. And we have our own set here in the Great Lakes. And these are run in what we call operational uh, mode, which is they're the official uh, model output that gets turned into a forecast. So if you see a forecast for water temperatures or ice or water levels, or there are current forecasts, most people don't look at them, but um, that comes from these models. And that's, you know, part of NOAA's bread and butter is to create these types of forecasts. So uh, we've had these models in the Great Lakes um, providing real-time information on hydrodynamics uh, for about 20 years. The straits were a gap there. So until about 10 years ago, the our Lake Michigan model just pretended like there was a wall at the Straits of Mackinac and same with the Lake Huron model. And so we didn't have any means to predict what would happen at the straits. Uh, our initial effort was to start including the straits in these models. And so we started taking these observations and that was only about a year or two before I even heard about line five, <laughs> kind of in that process of, of building this model. So we would have forecast conditions for the coast guard, for uh, commercial navigation, kind of the, the more common stakeholders. Um, in that process, somebody approached me and said, you know, there's an oil pipeline down there. And that started the process of really expanding the utility of these models then for things like uh, spill transport. When you tried to apply these models to like if there was a spill, what did you find in terms of if there if there's a rupture, in, you know, in the pipe that's underneath the water, what would happen? Where would the oil go? So, you know, because the currents are are oscillating back and forth, right? If that waterbed analogy. So they, it moves on a pretty regular period. Um, every few days, the water will reverse from from one direction to the other in the Straits of Mackinac. Uh, but the direction of, if, if there was a rupture, the direction of the oil depends on when that happens, right? So if the currents are moving eastward, it's going to immediately shoot eastward for a while, and then it's going to reverse and go westward again. Um, and so there's this... An, Initially, it all depends on the, say, the exact minute or hour of, of that rupture. But eventually, it's going to be spread in both directions. And because the currents are, are so high there, uh, it's going to make uh, pretty far uh, headway into each lake. I don't have an exact number on your uh, top of my head. It kind of depends on um, the amount of time. If there's a spill response, you know, there's also evaporation uh, oil on the surface that, that, that can happen as well. Um, but, you know... It, well into Michigan, well into Lake Huron, and really quickly too. So, you know, over a matter of a few hours or a couple of days, you're going to have a, a pretty massive spread in that region. Do you have a sense of how 
And, and I acknowledge that this is a super tricky issue and anybody who wants to go out and read about it, there, you know, there are people who depend on this pipeline for their livelihoods um, all over the place. And there are lots of people who are saying, you know, the, the risk of a rupture is too great. Um, or the consequence, perhaps, rather than, you know, right. It's a low probability, high consequence thing, isn't it? Or Right, right. But um, but I guess, do you have a sense of how different groups have used the information that's available to them? Um through the the work that you and your colleagues at Clairol have done, yeah. Um, so the all this model output, and in fact, these models themselves are, uh, you know, for the public. So this these uh, predictions have gone into a, uh, a spill exercise conducted by Enbridge and by the Coast Guard um, in 2015, uh, and it was used to you know give some estimation of a hypothetical spill and, and allow them to to prepare and respond for that. So it goes to both, you know, both of those groups. It has gone to studies that have come out of academic partners looking at worst case scenarios uh, of of spills and, and the impacts to you know the region and, and various degrees. Um, this is the the currents, the model currents that have supported those. So it really, I think, you know, I can't say this for certainty, but anytime if you've seen any kind of trajectory or uh, hypothetical spill around the straits it's probably come from these models, at least the current components. And so that's been given out to everybody. So, you know, the, the, uh, that information that gets used for policy, um, you know, is, is built on at least in, in uh, one component, the, these types of models. Um, and it used again across industry from, uh, you know, different levels of, of spill responders, uh, Enbridge themselves and, and environmental groups too. And so uh, this is interesting. So you've created this really powerful model, right? That people are, are using, they use them in exercises, kind of these fire drill or oil drills, I guess, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you have people using them in industry and government and things like that. So we talk about modeling a lot on this show. And one of the things that I'm always interested in is like how, how well these models are validated, I think, in the real world. And you sort of alluded to that. But, but when, when people have gone through different exercises or have you done any, I guess, have you done any real world tests? And if so, um, how, how is the model done or, or is there ways that you've adapted the model based on real world tests? You know, what, what on the ground, how well does this seem to work? Yeah, so part of the design process of these models is initial, we call it a hindcast, right? Instead of a forecast, but so going back to a historical year, running that year and comparing it to observations and say like, how good would the model have done? And NOAA has certain standards that models have to meet in order to become an operational model to provide forecasts. And I should say these forecasts are then what's used. If there was a spill tomorrow, the currents from this model will be guiding spill responders on, you know, how they'll be part of the information they use on to decide how to respond. Um, so there's that that hindcast piece where we test the model and, and validate it and go through a vetting phase. Then once it's run in real time, so this model's run every few hours in, in perpetual forecast real time conditions. There's ongoing verification. So we have observations out there right now that we can compare to all the time, and that allows us to track if the model starts to drift from reality, uh, or if there was again if there was a spill, responders could look at like how well has the model been tracking in the last few days, and they can use that to you know, provide some amount of confidence uh, in what they might, you know, expect the the quality of the forecast to be. Uh, the other thing is then we do ongoing campaigns. So we've released drifter buoys in the Straits of Mackinac, which are these little sailing kites that get, go in the water and they move with the currents. 
and they have GPS trackers so that satellites can tell us where they go. And then we say, okay, did the, would the model have tracked that, right? If I dropped a hypothetical buoy in the model and, and allowed it to move, does it move in the same direction as that? And so we're always doing these little tests. Um, and, and so in that sense, there's continual verification. Improvement also happens. Uh, so th- these models are, are lake models. They're models of the water. The input they need to run is what's happening in the weather. And that's also a NOAA thing. So NOAA is running weather models. So any improvements in weather models over the Great Lakes is essentially uh, passed on to these lake models. So if we get better wind forecasts, uh, say next year, we're going to have better hydrodynamic forecasts next year. Uh, and so there's there's that kind of um, assembly line style improvement uh, to something that would help, you know, in a spill response. So we always need more and better computers, essentially, even still. Right. And then, so I didn't realize that like operational model, that's interesting. It's like a term of art, essentially, right? And that's something that no one needs. I'm reminded of that George Clinton album from the 90s, The Awesome Power of a Fully Operational Mothership. Uh, well, this is really the operational, fully operational model. So that is uh, interesting. The other thing I'm reminded of, so I, I, my master's degree is in fisheries biology. I got that at University of Georgia. And the guy I was working with there was studying, um, I think it was striped bass. Uh, and, and they wanted to study how the eggs would flow through the Savannah River. And they, there was this, like the nineties was a time of like gimmicky experimental sodas. You know, you had like a uh, crystal Pepsi, uh, okay soda. If anybody remembers calling 1-800, I feel okay. You could call up and, and, uh, there would be these funny recordings. Um, but there was this other one called orbit soda, which was produced by Carolyn's favorite company, clearly Canadian. And it had like these, um, little floating balls in them. And, and, uh, so he figured out that these have the same specific density as striped bass eggs. And so he released a bunch of orbit soda into the Savannah river and tracked it that way. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for a new way to validate your models, I, uh, you might be able to find some old orbit. Soda. <laughs> if, if you can get a permit. Yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> right. We do on occasion have done dye studies, you know, not in the Straits because it would take a massive amount of dye <laughs> to do, to do much. The drifter buoys do a decent job. Uh, but, you know, it becomes a problem. People see die, they get concerned uh, that, that something is wrong, which is, you know, a good reaction to have. <laughs> um, and so those are a little bit trickier to do, but and those are, are common in rivers. And so we've done that, you know, in coastlines or, or uh, St. Clair River, places like that. Well, Eric, this is really interesting, actually. It's fascinating stuff, and it sounds like uh, important work. And I'd love to hear about kind of the relationship, you know, how government stuff feeds into uh, feeds into industry and whatever it reminds you of the importance of government science. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes today. The reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is that's two questions. The first of which is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? I think a sandwich could do a lot more for me. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't think, I think the ceiling on the greatest donut is is just too low. And so <laughs> I'm going to have to go with sandwich. That's a great answer. Um, I mean, it's 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 totally true, right? <laughs> so, are you are you in are you um, in Ann Arbor then at Glarel? Is that is that yep. where you are? So, next time I'm in Ann Arbor, I'm going to visit my friend uh, uh, Maria Lemos, and I'm going to take Maria out to lunch, and I'm going to get a great sandwich. Where should I take Maria out to lunch? I mean, the classic answer is probably Zingerman's Deli, which everybody gives, and that's uh, you know I support that. that. I think that would be fun. Okay, but what's the, what's your non-classic answer? Um, so I used to like, I haven't been there in a while because of the pandemic, but the Tempe Ruben at Old Town Tavern 
Yeah. It's a good place to go. I love a good tempeh Reuben. The, what was the name of that place? In, there was a place in Gainesville. It went out of business. I guess I was the only one who loved the tempeh Reuben. But it was... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go to Old Town Tavern and get myself a tempeh Reuben. There you go. That sounds good. And the second question is this. So you are, and let me get this right, you're a physical scientist, yes, but more specifically, you are a hydrodynamicist. Uh, what is it that makes you good at that job, right? What are some key skills for your type of work? Uh, so most of the work revolves around computer modeling and computer programming. So that's like a huge piece of it. And then interest in, you know, the physics, the physical side of things. Um, so that's probably the, the skill set behind that. I think, but I, you know, I started this job, I don't know, 13 years ago, I can't remember. Uh, and I didn't have a background in this type of stuff. So I was a, a fluids modeler, but did not work in environmental or Great Lakes or hydrodynamics or anything like that. Um, but I had the, like the modeling and physics skill set, and I've just learned on the job here. So I'd say more so it's, it's like the enthusiasm about those things, right? So if you're, if, if the movement of water through the Straits of Mackinac is, is exciting, that with some programming skills is is the magic recipe i think well dr eric anderson uh hydrodynamicist with the great lakes environmental research lab noah in ann arbor right down the street from zingerman's uh where can people go to find out more about the work that you do maybe these models or something like that is there a website is there a social media feed uh something along those lines yeah there's both you can go to uh um to check out a lot of the research that that we're doing here in the great lakes um, you can also find links then to social media that, that Gleral and, and Noah Partners are putting out. That's perfect. And uh, if you're listening right now, you can go ahead and look at your uh, podcast feed, and we'll have that in the show notes. Or if not, you can go to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 34, number 34, because this is episode 34. Well, Dr. Eric Anderson, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Carolyn. This is great. You know, Carolyn, I'm so appreciative of you uh, bringing that issue up, line five, because I, I honestly hadn't heard about it until we started talking about it for a potential episode. And I mean, it, it uh, you know, it's in the news right now because there's a big international dispute over whether or not to shut it down. And um, we're trying to get some guests to even talk about that because I think it touches on so many things that are so important. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the deal right now is that um, the state of Michigan said they have to shut it down they do have a permit to build a, a tunnel underneath that like it wouldn't it would no longer be in the water so like the company has permit to i believe they have a permit to um like basically build an encasing tunnel uh so that it wouldn't just be in the water and like if somebody strikes it or whatever it would it would leak um but it's it's so so tricky for so many different reasons um and it's a huge deal on both sides of the border right now yeah so yeah yep. and it's rapidly evolving too so uh but right. it, it's an issue worth following because yeah it's it's tricky it's it's important uh, it runs through an environmentally important area uh and economically and you know everything everything about it's important but i mean we're also uh still an oil driven society. Right. Um, right. and, and so that's a lot of oil that it brings and a lot of energy and a lot of jobs. So it's, it's, uh, you know, if they're easy answers, they would have, they would have done those already. I think. Right. For sure. So what did you learn today? What did I learn today? I learned just like the basics about line five, which I didn't even know. And I learned that the, the, uh, hydrodynamics in the Strait of Mackinac, uh, where the Big Mac bridge is, um, are really complicated and interesting and, and frankly exciting uh, in uh, certain definitions of that word. So I learned a ton. How about you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love geeking out about stuff like this. I think everybody who listens knows this by now. Um, but he's also, you know, he's absolutely right that it is a beautiful, beautiful spot. We try to go up there um, every summer and basically spend a week just sitting and staring. And it's lovely. Yeah, yep. sitting and staring. <laughs> the ultimate goal of parents <laughs> everywhere is just to get a minute to sit and stare. That's all I want. All I want. Great. All right. Well, a couple of announcements. Whereby a couple? I mean, one announcement. Teach Me Out of the Red Lakes Book Club. We've already announced this once or twice, but uh, in case you are unaware of it, um, we're going to be reading and discussing Dan Egan's Death and Life of the Great Lakes this summer. It's only one book. Sounds like two. It's just one. Uh, and so uh, if you want to start, you know, if you want to take part in that book club, go ahead and read it. Um, and uh, well, we're going to be reading it this summer, probably talking about it early fall. We're going to tie it in with some work we're doing um, with some graduate students. Uh, but we're going to take listener calls and comments. So go check out the book, read the book. It's a classic for a reason. Um, or at least that's what they tell me. I haven't actually read it yet, but uh, I assume it's a classic for a reason. And if not, well, then I'll tell you that because, uh, you know, honesty in podcasting, very important. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, uh, do the thing, Carolyn. Let's get out of here. All right. Are you going to play music? I am. Uh, I got this loop thing. I'm just going to roll with it. Ready and bada bing, bada boom. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check the, out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, who we really appreciate. And I encourage you to check her work out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. <laughs> you can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. <laughs>